Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. In our third week of pie school, we're taking a look at some essential pie tools we couldn't do without and a few new ones we covet. We'll also review our pork, apple, and cider pie to see if this savory treat was sweet enough for our families. And we'll introduce a new-to-us pie that falls into one of our favorite categories, a desperation pie. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, I have a great update for you and the listeners. I want to tell you all about a grains conference that I went to. My friend, I love you so much. You're the (laughs) only person I know who is going to a grains conference. Can't wait. (laughs) Well, this conference is perfectly located between Seattle and Portland, which is, I believe, the reason it is selected. And it's presented by the Washington State University Food Systems. And then they have all of these wonderful sponsors that um, come along with it. And they're It basically is a conference on people who are dedicated to bringing back whole grains. And um, when you think about, for example, when we grew up and you went to the grocery store and you bought coffee, there were maybe two or three choices, right? And they were in a can. Yes. And <laughs> and your choice was, you know, folders or where I grew up, it was, you know, community. I mean, it, you really didn't know a lot about your coffee. And now you know, you know, which country it's from. And we're even starting to see, you know, which farm it was growing on. You're reading stories about the farmers who grew it. Well, this right. this is similarly what is going on with grain. And okay. the keynote speaker at this conference was a woman who runs um, a basically kind of farmer's market collective called Grow New York in uh, New York City. So, I mean, it's it's nationwide. And so, for example, this group, if I said to them, oh, what flower did you use? They would not simply respond with, you know, King Arthur or King Arthur in the red bag or all purpose. You know, they would know the farm and the type of flower, the type of flower that they're using and the farm that grew it. You know, so it would be, oh, I'm using a you know, a whole wheat barley grain from the Lonesome Whistle Farm in Portland, Oregon, or something like that. So, wow. Okay. Yes. So, very, very into the source and who's growing it. And is this organic movement involved as well, or not necessarily? Um, I would say yes. I think that is a big part of it. And I, I also feel what's really important as part of it is making that connection between. The farmers, the people who then mill the grain, and then the bakers who eat it, who cook with it, and then the consumers who eat it. I was very intimidated going to this conference. Um, I knew there would be a lot of people who are professional bakers. I signed up for three cooking classes. The first one on day one was five hours long. Wow. Yeah, it was the first time I've stood in one place for five hours. (laughs) That was a challenge in and of itself. 
It was co-taught by two people, Annie Moss of Sea Star Bakery in Portland and Andrew Ross, who is an Australian with a lovely accent, but he is a professor of food science at Oregon State University. And so it was a fascinating blend of, you know, both the science behind baking and then just the practical day-to-day applications. And we made numerous things in Annie's class. We made um, some barley drop biscuits. We made some hoe cakes. We made some cornbread. Uh, Just all sorts of wonderful things. But my absolute favorite, and I thought of you when I made it, we made whole grain digestive biscuits. Oh, yay, the digestive. Yes. It's such a big thing here. There's so many different kinds of digestive. Oh, well, it was so good. I've obviously never made anything like that on my own. It was, it reminded me of making the shortbread because, you know, you make your dough yeah. and then you roll it out. Um, but it was definitely more on the on the savory side than on the sweet side. Um, again, Digestives really needs another name, too. I it's, know. it's another one we need to come up with. It sounds so... I don't know, like medicinal, you're Ill and you need something to like calm your tummy or something. Yes. Maybe that's how it started, you know, for all I know. But they're just a very um, kind of almost crisp cookie, but yes, almost veering to- on the savory side. Unless you get the ones coated in uh, in chocolate, of course. But <laughs> <laughs> and that would not have hurt this. It would have it would have gone really well with it. Um, yeah, it kind of reminded me of a savory graham pra- cracker. I think would yeah, be yeah, yeah, a little my bit. Best. Yeah. So I just really loved it. A couple of people in the class made the comment that it reminded them of homemade McVittles. And and the people who seemed to know what a McVittle were were just very excited. I think that's some type McVitie. of McVitty. McVitty. Oh, so you yes. know I that's, I had never heard oh, of yes. this. Yeah, that's the brand name. Oh, so that's the brand what name. is it? Well, so uh, they make a variety. They make one called Hobnobs, which is very popular. And in fact, I think you can get those pretty easily in the U.S. now. Uh, and it's it's just the brand. So it's it's the plain kind of more like a shortbread version like you're talking about. They make those plain. They make those topped with chocolate. Uh, then they make the Hobnob. And that's more of almost like an oatmeal, like a like a stiff oatmeal cookie uh, with, the, with the chocolate as well. So mm-hmm, yeah, that's the brand name, McVitie's. Okay. Well, I had a feeling you might know what that is. Everyone who knew what it was was very excited. <laughs> As I, you can see, I immediately got very excited too. Yes. Uh, so that was day one. Um, it, it was really f- fabulous and fascinating. I believe on that day, it's all starting to blur now, but I believe on that day we also made our challah bread. And mm-hmm. I had never done that before. So that mm-hmm. was fabulous. The She asked right up front, do you guys want to do a three-strand braid or a four-strand braid? And I thought, oh, good. I know how to do a three-strand braid braid and so of course the class selected a four strand braid which I don't even like know I have what like I didn't even know that was a thing it's with a the braid it is so a confused. thing and she gave us a handout that detailed it and I tried so hard and I just could not get the hang of it oh, as much as I kept you. looking at the picture and starting over and starting over and then at one point I turned and the table behind me there was this uh, young man I think his name was Mike and you could see he was just doing it and he was sort of muttering something under his breath. And I finally went over there and I said, can I watch you and see what you're doing? And he said, oh, sure. And he goes, don't look at the picture. He said, just repeat after me. And I'm, I'm not going to get this phrase right, although I do have it written down so I can, I can post the correct phrase when we post the show notes. But it was something like one over three, four over two, two over three. One over three, four over two, two over three. And so what you're doing is you, you have those four strands numbered from left Mm -hmm. to right 
And he just was repeating to himself over and over again the order in which you overlap them. And as soon yes. as he taught me that, it came together in like two seconds. I was like, oh, this is the easiest thing in the world. And I just wanted to share that story because it reminded me of the reason I love bakers. I feel like they are just the most generous and helpful people. You know, there was no part of him that was like, well, just look at the picture and good luck. You know, he was yeah, so happy hi. to help me. Um, and he just said, yeah, I'm not really a visual person. Those pictures never work for me. So I just kind of work this little, you know, this little rhyme in my head. And that helps me keep on track. And it made so much more sense to me. So my well, thank you also for this tip, which may come in handy when braiding my daughter's hair. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Don't like, don't even look at it. Just sort of count and okay. count and cross is what he was awesome. saying. Yeah. Um, on day two, I had two more cooking classes. Now, they, each one of these was three hours, so it was another six hours of cooking, but um, a shorter class. The first one was with the pastry chef from the Little Tea Baker in Portland, and also the head pastry chef or the head bread maker from the Grand Central Bakery, uh, and she's over both Portland and Seattle. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh, we just made some amazing things in that class. We made a barley sandwich loaf. It was the first time I had ever cooked or baked with barley, and just their shaping techniques, the, you know, the way they use use the dough. They use very little flour on their table. They use water to keep the dough from sticking. I mean, just little things like that were like, oh, you know, I just constantly am throwing flour on everything. Um, So that was fun. And then in the afternoon, the head baker from the Tom Douglas restaurants came in and taught a class. And so you can can imagine I was just in heaven. Um, She had us make a spelt spice cake. So again, not a lot of experience baking with spelt. That was fun. And what I loved about that is we made those in the industrial-sized muffin pans, which uh, basically, I think if at home you have one of those cupcake pans that has six on a tray instead of 12, you know, the really big size. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's basically what it was. And because this didn't have a lot of leavening in it, they didn't rise and get the big dome on the top. They were fairly flat. And so then when they were done, we flipped the pan over. They popped right out. And then we had made a... um, powdered sugar glaze to go over the top and we drizzled it on top and so it did sort of that drip cake action and I just was in heaven because it was a little mini cake it reminded me a lot of the mini cakes in fact you'll see in the sweet uh, by Ottolenghi cookbook but it was just made in a cupcake pan basically and it was an upside down cupcake and I even said to her like I can't believe this this is so this makes so much sense and she was like oh yeah restaurant trick You know, and so nice. It was a lot of fun. I met some great people, and um, I now have a new appreciation for some whole grains. And I've checked out a couple of books that uh, I'm going to start going through. So I predict preheaters will be hearing from me on some things that aren't just all purpose flour. We might be trying to mix in some other flours and have some fun with that. That sounds so awesome. And I mean, you and I both continue to be advocates for taking these kind of cooking classes when you have the opportunity. You know, three days is is a kind of a marathon stretch there, but there's yeah. there's many other just kind of like three hours on one day or even just one hour on one day type of thing. So they're they're everywhere and and really fun and that sounds awesome. Yeah, I really did enjoy it. So thanks to Cascadia Grains for having that conference here in my hometown, and I'll post some pictures up as well so you guys can see what I did. It was a lot of fun. 
But getting back to our Pi Month, this is our third week of Pi School, and we had another uh, entry. We were just talking about the the McVitties from the UK, the Digestive Biscuit. Uh, we did our pork, apple, and cider pie, which was from uh, Great British Bake Off judge Paul Hollywood, his delightful cookbook called Pies and Puds. Andrea, I'm going to let you kick this one off since this was a recipe that I had made and, and had introduced. What'd you think? Well, I thought this was a really fun recipe. I have to say, first of all, I I thought that um, I told you I was going to save this quote from you when we were planning this month and we were looking at Valentine's Day. You know, most people think about chocolate or candy. And you said, nothing says Valentine's to me like a savory meat pie. (laughs) (laughs) Which reminds me of that 30 Rock episode where Liz Lemon makes the cheese soup on Valentine's Day. (laughs) I was like, what's the problem? Sounds great. I know. <laughs> I, hey, I say if if you've got a partner who swings toward the savory, they're going to be thrilled with this. So I had absolutely no trouble getting the ingredients for this pie. Filling is, you know, got a little bit of oil. You've got an onion that you chop up and some celery and you saute that. Um, you put in some pork shoulder. And I was lucky enough to find in the grocery store, I found a, I think it's called a Boston butt, right? Yes, yeah. same thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was, and so it was cubed Boston butt. So it was perfect. I didn't even have to cut it myself. It was already cut up. A little bit of flour, a dry cider. So I had a lot of fun picking out um, a, a dry cider. I actually found one that had apple in it, which I thought complemented the apple flavor. Chicken stock. Uh, then there are a call for one cooking apple and two eating apples. So I admit I did have to reach out to you, Stefan, and ask, what does that mean? That's true. <laughs> so here, this is how we would differentiate. Uh, the eating apple would be something on the sweeter side, something with a less firm texture. And the cooking apple would be, he's talking probably about the famous Bramley apple, mm-hmm. but like a Granny Smith, something very, very firm. Because what he ultimately wants is for some of the apple to break down a little bit and some of it to retain its shape. So yes. Yes. So I did one Granny Smith and I did two Pacific Rose. So that was Perfect. my apple choices. Then some sage leaves, that adds some nice flavor in there. So there's your filling. And that's that all came together really nicely. Uh, I had absolutely no problem with that. The pastry, I had a, a few issues with. Now, first of all, I should point out that on, I think it was last week's episode when you introduced this pie stuff in, you said this is a single crust pie. And this yes. very much confused me because as I looked at the photo, I could see that there was a crust on top. And so I have never in my life had a pie that had a crust on top and didn't have a crust on the bottom. Maybe this is a British thing. I'm wondering. I mean, I've made chicken pot pie. I've made turkey pot pie. Now, truth be told, I always use the same recipe. I use the Ina Garten Barefoot Contessa pot pie recipe. And so it could just be that I thought, well, that's how it's done. But so you're familiar with this. You, You have either eaten or made before a pie that had no bottom crust to it. Right. So I think this typically comes into play in one of two ways, either in time-saving menus or in weight loss menus. And the reason oh. for that is obviously it takes you less time to make just a single crust. And sometimes even like in a restaurant, you'll see like the chicken stew with, a, you know, a cutout, maybe a puff piece of puff pastry or something and they're calling it like a pot pie uh, and then also if you're not eating two crusts you're you're saving some calories so those are kind of the two ways that I have experienced it in the in the past 
Okay. All right. Well, I I was I, I think the main reason I was confused about this is I think about, you know, berry pies and how you can often have trouble with a berry pie not setting up and so it's all runny. And so I couldn't figure out, well, if there's no bottom crust here, how are you going to get this thing out of the pie pan and not have yeah. it just run all over the place? That's where you pointed out to me the incredibly important side serving of the mash. <laughs> It's true because the runniness here you want because you've essentially made a gravy. Yeah, That's why it is really crucial to serve this with mashed potatoes. Yes. Yes, exactly. Crucial. It is a t- it's a time when you're like, yay, I have runniness because you've basically <laughs> just made made the gravy. Yeah, good point. I thought making the pastry, and I was doing this with my mother, by the way, which was a lot of fun. I really love um, getting her in the kitchen with me. And, you know, for example, I say to my mom, oh, mom, do me a favor. Will you just peel, core, and slice these <laughs> Three three apples, and she just goes right to it with nary a complaint. So your least favorite kitchen task. <laughs> Thanks, mom. But we did run into a little a little trouble here on the cider pastry, and uh, it, it was it was my fault. So I was in her kitchen. She does not have a kitchen scale, and this recipe obviously written for a, a UK audience, so it's you know based on weights. It says 125 milliliters or four fluid ounces of dry cider, and then 125 milliliters or four fluid ounces of olive oil. So you you take an egg, beat the egg in a large bowl, and you put in the cider and the olive oil. You know, I had out my Pyrex glass cup measure and poured in a half a cup, and that was the four ounces of the dry cider. And then I poured in a half a cup, and that was the four ounces of the olive oil. You get that all stirred up. You add in a little bit of baking powder and salt. And then the next thing that you add in is 350 to 400 grams or 12 to 14 ounces of plain flour. Now, you'll notice it doesn't Mm -hmm. say 12 to 14 fluid ounces because flour is not a fluid ounce. But my head was still in the space of four ounces is half a cup because that's what I had just done with the cider and the olive oil. And I even said it out loud to my mom. I go, oh, okay, I'm at the flour. I said, it says four, I said, it says 12 to 14 ounces. So four ounces is half a cup. So 12 ounces would be a cup and a half, right? And she was like, yeah, that sounds right. So I did a cup and a half of flour. So you can imagine (laughs) how very, very sticky this was because, um, after I made this and realized I had done it wrong, I went and looked at that uh, King Arthur conversion chart. And for all-purpose flour, four ounces is a cup. Yes. It all depends on what you're weighing. So. Yes, indeed. I knew something was wrong, but I also had never made this recipe before. So I just thought, well, Maybe this is just the way it works. You know, and kind of my typical pie crust recipe is two and a half cups flour to two sticks of butter. So it didn't strike me as incredibly strange that this was like one and a half cups of flour to half a cup of oil. Uh, You know, I I don't know. I just kind of thought, okay. But as I put it in the plastic wrap, like the, you know how normally you put the ball of dough in the plastic wrap and then you just sort of pull up the edges and wrap it real tight. I couldn't even get it to wrap tight. It just kept spreading. So I uh, just threw it in the refrigerator and thought, well, all it needs is to chill. And we went back a couple hours later, and I knew we were in trouble when I said to my mom, why don't you grab the uh, pastry? And she opened the refrigerator dough, and she went, oh, no. And I was like, was it on the bottom shelf? Yes. So I had put it on the middle shelf. It had just oozed the plastic wrap open, oozed (laughs) onto the shelf, and oozed behind the shelf and onto the shelf below it. So... 
we had this horrible mess. I felt so bad. Oh, my gosh. Um, but it was still – it wasn't – it's so hard to describe the texture. It wasn't runny, even though it was very yeah. sticky. It kind of reminded me of like that movie, The Blob, you know, where it sort of moves That's into exactly. the city. Yes. Yeah. So yes. I still was yes. able to kind of pick it up, put it back together. At that point, I went and looked up the flower conversion, which I should have done earlier, realized my mistake. And so I just, you know, started kneading it and adding in flour, adding in flour. So when I did roll it out and cook with it, it was the correct proportions, I believe. But yeah, that was my one mistake. And I think that's, um, that's something that about this pastry that allows you to do that, not not with any kind of you know, traditional pie crust pastry, could you then add the extra right. flour at the yeah. end? But here, because this is almost more of a biscuit, yes. I think you were just treating it more like a bread, a bread dough. Um, I really like this crust. I think that it has the the characteristics of a yeasty biscuit, and that's down to the cider. Yeah. And the alcohol in the cider. And it has a very nice kind of crustiness. Uh, it has a great flavor. Yeah, I, go, I think it also works really well with the cider flavors that are already in the stew. I do, too. I just absolutely loved it. It was my first time making a crust that had olive oil instead of, you know, butter or leaf lard. Um, I was a little worried about that, but I thought it was absolutely delicious. You know, it browned up nicely. It rolled out easily. I I, I just could not have been happier. I didn't, um, I wasn't able to do the uh, pie bird instruction or the pie did they call it a pie funnel, I believe? Yes, he calls it a funnel, but that's just any device that that lets the steam kind of escape from the bottom up through the top. I just made sure I did some really good deep slits and, yes. and decor- decorative edging, <laughs> that sort of thing, yes. to make sure that the steam could escape. It baked about 35, 40 minutes. We let it sit another 10 minutes. It was our dinner that night. We all, we served it, of course, with the mashed potatoes, and we all thought it was just amazing. So... Oh, good. Yes, we we all really love it too. And it's it's a really good hearty winter uh, stew. I mean, it's essentially a stew with a biscuit topping. And the thing I like also is that, you know, the stew itself can take a little bit longer to cook, but you could do this in stages. So you could make the stew one day. You could even use this if you had some leftover stew, just throw on this biscuit topping because that part of it comes together, you know, fairly quickly. And then it's, it's easy to work with. And then you're only doing the top crust. Yes. So you don't need to to worry too hard about about getting those crusts together anything like that he did have the one tip here that i hadn't seen before uh, which was you cut a thin strip of crust and put it around the lip and then get that a little wet and that's how you kind of attach it to the sides of the pie tin which i thought was uh, cool and a good trick that worked well it's basically so the crust will stick Instead of slumping down. So my mom and I read that instruction five or six times. We read it out loud to each other. We contemplated (laughs) all of its various meanings. And eventually we just decided we didn't understand it. And we skipped it. Now... We then, as our pie cooked on either side, we had the crust just fall over the edge. And yes. it didn't, it almost reached the bottom of the oven. I was really nervous about it, but it didn't. And when it came time to serve, I just popped, I just broke that off. I mean, it, it didn't have a problem. But I thought to myself, oh, if I had done that strip, I would have, that would have sort of come up and covered that pastry and made sure that you don't have any drip off. Yes, that's what that's there for. (laughs) Exactly. You've learned so much. I can speak to the fact that there is a purpose for that. You know, it's so funny when you're 
reading a new recipe and you come across an instruction that is something you've never done before, I really wish recipe writers would put in here the reason why you're doing that. Because yes. otherwise you you read it and you're going, I, I don't understand why I am cutting the strip and putting it around the edge. You know, it just it just made no sense to me. And I think all, you know, if you had just added a line saying, you know, this will ensure that your crimped edges do not, as they begin to bake, drip toward the bottom of the oven or something like that, you know. Maybe that's something that all UK bakers know. Oh, <laughs> that could be true. Okay, good point. Maybe they do not feel that they need to add Paul baking Hollywood, 101. Paul if you're listening, could you please let us let us know? Um, yes, so good. Well, great success on both sides of the Atlantic with that one. And uh, that's from Paul's book, Pies and Puds. And I love it a lot. So we may be revisiting some more Pies and Puds down the road. Oh, good. Well, I really enjoyed it. It was totally new to me. So I, I thought it was great fun. Another new-to-me pie, and I think it's going to be new to you as well, is our pie that's up next. It's called a shoe fly pie from Alton Brown. And uh, two reasons this one called out to me. One is that it falls in the category of desperation pie. And Stefan, you and I have talked about how much we love to make a desperation pie. Sometimes they're called a pantry pie. And they get that phrase because Typically, the ingredients in the pie are already in your pantry. I also like to think of them as if you are desperate for a pie. Oh, like, yes. <laughs> you just have to have one. I simply must get a pie. I love that. Yes. Um, yes. I also was intrigued by this recipe because of Alton Brown. I, I like cooking from Alton Brown recipes. I like his TV show. I like the sort of food science aspect. But I've only ever done, um, you know, entrees. Uh, we've done Alton Brown's turkey for Thanksgiving for years. But I've not done desserts from Alton Brown before. So that's why this particular recipe called out to me. Yeah, I have not made anything by Alton Brown. Is he kind of a Cook's Illustrated guy in that, you know, I'm going to find the very best way to do a recipe? Is that his thing too? I don't know that I would categorize him that way. I would categorize him more as a Bill Nye in the kitchen. And I apologize oh, if okay. people don't know who Bill Nye is, but Bill Nye, the science guy. Um I think he's very much into the science. And okay, so it. Um, it, to the point where sometimes he does things that I feel are totally unnecessary. I mean, you know, he, he will, for example, have his blender powered by a motorcycle engine or, you know, he'll be pulling out a welding torch uh, when a hand torch would do just fine. So it, it can go Got overboard it. a little bit into the wacky side of things. You know, for example, I watched his videos when we did Cake Month way, way back in the beginning of Preheated. Um, I watched his videos on making cakes and you know he was the first person who said to me um, when you're making layer cakes you need to use a food scale and you need to measure because you want each of your cakes to have the same weight so you're not you know having one layer that's a lot thicker or thinner than the others so I do think he is about precision and weights and measures and science um, I, I don't necessarily get the impression it's as much about the flavor and the final result as it is about the technique and the fun, you know? Or, Got it. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. And especially in light of this recipe. And so uh, listeners, desperation pies kind of by nature are very easy to put together. And this recipe, the first like two thirds of it is devoted to how Alton wants you to blind bake your crust. And so it can look kind of intimidating when you actually get down to the filling the filling is all of like 
you know, five sentences. And so it's it's not complicated at all. So I think, you know what, Andrea? I think I'm going to use my pie provisions pie crust mix here. I've kind of got a busy week coming up. Alton's re- uh, recipe for the pie crust in this shoe fly pie is you know, a butter lard type of type of thing. It's it's not necessarily difficult, but how he puts it together, you put it in the fridge and you put it in a bag, then you put it in a two pie tins, this kind of thing. I think I might tell listeners, if you have a good technique for blind baking, go ahead and just do your own. What, what do you think on that one? I am definitely okay with that. Um, I think I'm going to try his method only because I don't have a great blind baking. I feel like I've had good blind bakes, but I've also had bad blind bakes, and I've done this done it the same way both times, so I'm not sure what I'm doing correctly when it works or what I'm doing incorrectly when it doesn't work. So. <laughs> Got it. Um, I think what I might do is see if I can find a video. I, I, he he has so much uh, visual. He's got to have a video of him doing a blind baking. So I'm going to look for that. And if I find one, I will post it. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out from this recipe is the language that he uses when he's talking about one of the key ingredients in the filling, which is molasses. And it says eight ounces of molasses by weight. And so can you explain to us what that means, you being our, our new goddess when it comes to weighing and measuring? Yeah, and maybe in light of this this cautionary tale you've just told about the uh, weighing the flour as yeah. well. So, yeah, obviously um, I should not be weighing so in let's not listen on to this topic. <laughs> so eight ounces of molasses by weight does not mean you can go by the eight ounce bottle of molasses and dump that in there. Um, you need to use your food scale and you need to to measure that and make sure it registers eight ounces. So um, it's a difference between volume uh, and weight, which is a big difference. And um, so be sure you do that. When people in the comments section on this recipe are having problems, it's almost exclusively because they didn't read that crucial instruction. Okay. And Otherwise, the filling ingredients are super simple. I've never made a pie with three quarters cup of boiling water and baking soda, right? I mean, I am yeah. so, I have no idea what this is going to, what this is going to turn out to be. So I, I cannot wait for this pie. I, I love chocolate chess. I loved, you know, the, all the custard pies and different things that we've done. And we've talked about the vinegar pies and am, am really, really interested uh, for this experiment. I meant to ask. Do you know why it's called a shoe fly pie? I didn't see that in his introduction. Well, Andrea, I happen to. So <laughs> I had a feeling you would. So back in uh, episode 28, when we talked about the bizchochito, I found this great website called whatscookingamerica.com. And they have a ton of history by region, by food, all across the United States. It's a wonderful resource. It's just so easy to get lost on it, too. So according to What's Cooking America. This is a Pennsylvania Dutch recipe. It is called shoe fly because the ovens used to be outdoor ovens and the molasses would kind of drip or make, you know, as they were preparing it or during the cooking and the flies would be attracted and they would say shoe fly. Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe they called it a molasses pie and then shoe fly developed after that. Yes. Or like a sugar pie is another thing you sometimes uh, see that it referred to. So any kind of like molasses, corn syrup, uh, Lyle's golden syrup, any kind of like a, a, that, that type of sweetener would would it uh, be included. But yeah. All Mm -hmm. right. Thank you for the fact finding on that. I was curious about that. So. Very good. Well, both of those recipes, uh, this is the shoe fly pie from Alton Brown and also the pork cider and uh, cider. What's it called? Pork cider and pork apple uh, and cider. What's the next pie. Thing? Apple, apple. <laughs> 
those are both on our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You'll find links there as well as our Facebook page and Pinterest page. Uh, switching gears a little bit, Stefan, another one of our favorite topics I'd love to talk about is fashion. And I know you enjoy keeping up on fashion. In fact, I still remember back in episode 10, which was Books and Brownies, you recorded while wearing your faux fur stole. It's a classic preheated moment. And Andrea, I'm actually wearing it right now. <laughs> Of course you are. Well, I have found the essential outfit component for spring 2018 to get us and all the preheaters on the best dressed baker list. Are you speaking of the Pioneer t-shirts and sweatshirts from Pie Provisions? You know I am. These adorable unisex t-shirts and sweatshirts are available in gray or blue. And honestly, no baker's wardrobe is complete without one. I love a baking-related outfit. Choose from the Pioneer sweatshirt or t-shirt or the Home Baking Pioneer tee. All are a super cute way to let others know of your passion for pie. You bet. And for a limited time, Pie Provisions is offering preheated listeners 25% off orders on their website, www.pieprovisions.com. That's P-I-E-P-R-O-V-I-S-I-O-N-S.com. When you use the promo code PHPI. Pie Provisions is also giving one lucky preheated listener an amazing gift basket filled with special goodies, including a chic Pioneer tee and sweatshirt. Check out our preheated Facebook group and comment on the Pie Provisions post for a chance to win. Faux fur stole not included. <laughs> Stefan, to wrap up this week's episode of Pie School, I'd like to talk about what we each consider to be our essential pie tools in the kitchen. So I will go ahead and start. One of the things is my Pyrex pans. And I use these glass pans, the shallow pans. They're typically the 9-inch. I use them when I'm giving people pies. So while that may sound a little bit extravagant, um, at my Goodwill, they're 99 cents each. And yeah. very often if they have, you know, how they'll do the whole pink label, 50% off today. So very often I can get them for 49 cents each. It's just such a nice thing. I can give it to a person. And I can tell them, don't bother about returning it to me. You can keep it or, you know, you can redonate it to Goodwill. And I just like baking a pie in a glass pan. I like being able to lift it out of the oven and look at the color and see how it's browning. Um, I'm not opposed to those, you know, metal disposable pans at all. But I do think it's a little nice touch to have a glass Pyrex pan when you give someone a pie. Yeah, and 49 cents is way cheaper than the disposables. I think it is. Yeah, it definitely is. Not just competitive, but actually a better price. My second essential tool is a pastry cutter, and I use this when I'm making my lattice strips. So, of course, if you are making a lattice top for your pie, you can certainly just use a plain old knife with a sharp edge and cut nice, even strips. I can't cut an even strip to save my life, so <laughs> this pastry cutter comes in really handy because it's... It's basically a wooden handle with a little wheel at the end. It kind of looks like a mini pizza cutter. And the wheel is fluted. And so as you run it along your pie crust, your strips have a curly cue edge, for lack of a better term. If you don't cut straight strips, the I feel that that waviness um, just sort of hides that fact that your strip yeah, is not yeah. perfectly straight. So I really love that. We have mentioned how much we love our tapered rolling pins. So these are the rolling pins that are just one piece of 
wood, the very end of them, the handle section is narrower than the middle, but they don't have uh, the handles that you hold on to where, you know, your knuckles can get scraped. So I personally love those tapered rolling pins. Sometimes they're called French rolling pins as well. One of my newest things that I've discovered that I'm absolutely loving, I found it when I was doing my shortbread, is the rolling pin cheaters. These are the um, rubber bands that you can put on your rolling pin and they will let you roll out a perfect uh, depth. So, you know, if you want a quarter inch, if you want an eighth of an inch, if you want three eighths of an inch. So I think those are really fun. And um, the last thing that is essential for me is called my pie box. And this is a wooden box. I ordered it online. I think the company is called piebox.com. I think they also make cake boxes. It just is one of those things where you can slide the wooden top open. You can put your pie in there. You slide it closed. And that way, when it's in your car and you're taking it somewhere, you're not worried about it moving all around and, and sloshing and spilling. And then when Ooh. you get to where you're going, you just open it up and pull your pie out and, and deliver it to the person. So, oh, I love it. It's a really fun thing. And it, you know, it kind of dresses things up a little bit. Yeah, I'm not leaving my pie box with anyone, it's merely my delivery tool. So, yeah, will you post a picture of that? Because I'm having a hard time visualizing what that looks like. I will. I would love, to, yeah, I would love to see that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically in my mind kind of like a jewelry box but for pie <laughs> right <laughs> um the last thing that i i'm starting to decide might be an essential tool but i don't have one and that's that pie bird or a pie funnel so um you know it came up in this recipe i've seen it in recipes before i've always just eschewed it because i assumed that it was merely sort of a decorative type thing but i i'm starting to wonder if maybe it really does uh, serve a purpose and me cutting holes and slits is is not enough i need to maybe get something to really let that steam out what do you think about yeah. the pie bird I have had a pie bird for years, and my mom gave me a very pretty holiday pie plate, and the, it's a cardinal, and so it kind of matches the design on oh, the pie okay. plate, mm -hmm. but I actually, I just have my little cardinal out always because it's very cheerful, and my mom and I have a special thing about cardinals, so it reminds me of her, but yeah, using it in this recipe reminded me that it's this kind of old-fashioned, very sweet little little tool and it's also one of those things I love which is that it it has this important function and so you could just get a very plain plastic pie funnel but I just love that it's this very pretty and and unique thing also I love when form and function and, and beauty are all tied together like too. that so yeah I think you could probably find one at the at the Goodwill or Value Village very easily and they can't be that expensive just brand new either so yeah yeah, yeah. I like them. Um, yes, so that's one for me. Um, I love my French rolling pin also. And I just wanted to quickly point out that um, I'm I'm short. And so um, <laughs> I, when I, I can't like get good kind of um, uh, leverage sometimes when I need to like roll something really big out. And so those French rolling pins are really lightweight and I can manipulate them much, much easier than I was ever able to do like the ball bearing kind, which were just kind of heavy and awkward yes. for me. Yes. And so if that's, you know, if you're, you know, petite like me or, or, or whatever, that's just something I hadn't, I was like, why do I love this rolling pin so much? It just like mm -hmm. fits my body really well and I think it's it's because it's so lightweight and easy to to handle for me so and I think it's certainly less that. expensive to get a um, French rolling pin and I do believe Pie Provisions has one of those on their website if you're looking for one than it is to have a contractor come in and lower all of your counters in the <laughs> kitchen <laughs> just 
just a little bit. Just a little bit. Here's that cost savings tip from uh, preheated to you. Uh, let's see what else. I love my deep dish pie pie plate. Uh, when I make a pie, I almost inevitably am making a deep dish pie. Mm. I just like that. I just like the look of it, the aesthetics. I have a really beautiful one that um, – my uh, our, our friend Anne Marie, who does our theme music for the show, her mother gave us for a for a wedding present. Oh, and how so nice! That's yeah. always always lovely to use that. So, um, yeah, those are just a, a few of mine. And listeners, we'd love to see what uh, you know, rolling pins or other gadgets you can't live without when you're when you're making up your pie. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get this episode onto the cooling racks. We hope you enjoyed this week's trip through our tool drawer and our venture into a savory pie. Next week, we're wrapping up pie school with a strawberry rhubarb crumble pie from Joy the Baker. So now's the time to start checking your freezer for any rhubarb you put away this summer. We'll also review our shoe fly pie and see if desperation pies continue to be a hit with the preheaters. Remember, you can find us and our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, on Facebook and Pinterest. We're also on Twitter and Instagram as preheatedpod. If you like our show, please do tell a friend and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever you download our show. Your reviews and your rankings really do help other people find us, and so we appreciate any extra time you can spend giving us a little boost. Until next time, thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, performed, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.